grab your Bibles. We're going to be reading the last half of chapter 4, crossing over into chapter 5. We have sort of a long passage today that we're going to work our way through. Um, and because the passage is so long, I want us to read it together, but we're, we're only going to read half of it. Okay, so know that the part that we're reading is only half of the text that we're dealing with together. John chapter 4, starting in verse 46, and we'll go through verse 54. That's going to be on like page 558 or so in the, uh, the Bible underneath the seats. If you don't have a Bible, then grab one of those underneath the middle aisle of seats, and you're welcome to use that as we work through scriptures together today. We're going to read these out loud. Um, so here we go. Verse 46. So he came again to Cana in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you'll not believe. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. Jesus said to him, go, your son will live. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, the servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better, and they said to him, Yesterday, at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, Your son will live. And he himself believed, and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Galilee. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for a beautiful day, uh, uh, a weekend that we get to remember those who have paid the ultimate price that we in our nation might uh, live free. We thank you for the opportunity that we have as a church that has a lot of military in it to say thank you to those who are serving even now. And we thank you for your word. Uh, let your word today be a, a, a lamp to our feet, a light to our path. We pray that it would guide us, that it would challenge us, God, that it would encourage us and it would help us to see God in a new light. Especially as we talk about the miraculous and healing today, God, we pray that you give us eyes to hear and, and ears, I'm sorry, eyes to see, I guess that's what our eyes are supposed to be doing, right? Ears to hear what you would have for us in Jesus' name, amen and amen. And so the, the gospel writer, John, is writing about 40 years after Jesus' death and resurrection to answer really one question. Is, is Jesus really God? And then he goes on to, to prove that in a number of ways. One of the ways that he proves it is he shows us several encounters that Jesus has with, with common folk. And, you know, they're just people living life. And in the process of of meeting Jesus, their, their lives are changed. Things about them um, are, are changed in that moment. And that really is what we encounter today. Um, if you look very closely at the Gospel of John, you can see that John intermingles signs that point people to who Jesus is uh, throughout. There are at least seven signs. Some people say eight if you count the resurrection. Um, there are at least seven signs, and we see two of those signs here in the text that we're going to read today. The first of those being Jesus healing this official son, and the second being Jesus he healing a, a paralytic, an invalid that had been um, in that condition for at least 38 years. And so today, um, as we look at our text, the, the overarching thing that I'm trying to convey to you is this idea of the miraculous and healing. Um, healing is something that's hard for us to get our hands around. I mean, some, uh, we, we come at it sometimes with, with trepidation based upon what we've experienced ourselves or, or preconceived notions that we have about the miraculous and healings. The, the truth is, it's controversial in some church circles. Um, many of us have questions about it, either um, coming from our own experience or something we've seen on TV. Uh, if, if you have a TV, if you got the internet, you, you can't escape uh, those 
pastors or evangelists that come on and they offer, if you send me $100, I'm not, I'm not picking, this is just truth, right? You send me $100, I'll send you this prayer cloth and you can use it to, to get an answer to whatever prayer need you might have. And uh, unfortunately, based upon whatever you think about the scripture and about those, those pastors, I mean, you may perceive that they're trying to sell you a used car, right? And that used car has only three wheels. We, we feel like we're take, being, being taken advantage of when people breach into these kinds of topics. Here's, here's my contention, and this is, this is, that, this is the lane that I'm, I'm moving in today. All of us have some kind of longing in some part of our life for healing. You might not call it that. You might call it just, I need to get better, I need to overcome something, I need to get well. Whatever you call it, all of us have some kind of longing in some part of our life for healing. Perhaps for you it's a physical ache or a chronic pain, some sickness in you that you just, I mean, it's, it's slowing you down, it's getting in the way, it actually makes you hurt. January I hurt my, my back doing something stupid, and it took me four months uh, of recovery, including two months of physical therapy to get to the point where I could even run again. It was a, a pain for which I prayed and had other people praying that God would heal me from. And it came very slowly. Some of you, uh, for, it may be rash, uh, relational. Say you're in a relationship that's been severed for years and no matter what you do, no matter what you say, it's not getting better. And there's pain that you feel because of the, the breach in the relationship and you want healing there. Maybe for you, it's, it's emotional. You suffered from some kind of abuse or you feel like you've been abandoned in some way in your past and I mean, you're trying to deal with it and you, it's giving you pain in your life just thinking about it and you want some kind of healing from that. Maybe it's not you at all. Maybe it's somebody else, somebody that you know, somebody that's familiar in your family, close friend, that's going through a physical, relational, emotional pain, and because you're in the periphery, you just want them to get better. It's, it's causing you pain seeing your friend experience pain. I would say aside from healing, when we think of the miraculous, we're really talking about things that we just can't explain. I mean, have you seen, have you heard about things that you can't explain? That really is the realm of, of discussion that we're encountering, encountering when we look at these two texts here. Three things I want to convey to you today. The first is the problem of the miraculous. And I'll explain what that means. We have a problem with the miraculous, and we have to overcome that problem to be able to receive what, what Scripture tells us about healing. The second is the, purp the, the, the purpose of miracles. And thirdly, uh, I just want to give you a little insight on our church. Those of you who, uh, who frequent our church and become members of our church, uh, I'm going to lay out for you uh, how we think about the miraculous, and especially healing. Firstly, the problem of the miraculous. The miraculous is a problem for two kinds of people. The first is a skeptic. The second is the crowd. And I'll explain that. Here's the problem for the skeptic. It's not unique that any of us have doubts about Christianity. There's all kinds of things that you can read in your Bible and that you perhaps have seen and experienced firsthand that may, you know, may give you doubts. All of us have a little skeptic, uh, skeptic voice inside of us, and I would tell you that that's, that's okay. That is absolutely okay. Uh, a show of hands, anybody in here, have you ever experienced a miracle for yourself or know someone that's experienced a miracle? Anybody? A lot of people. All right, a lot of y'all. Um, I can think of two. We're in the Acts 29 network. I can think of more than two, but two are worth mentioning. We're in the Acts 29 network, a, a network of church planning churches, and our president is, uh, is Matt Chandler, um, who is the, the pastor of the Village Church uh, in Texas. And in 2009, Matt was playing with his kids and fell over in his living room, um, having a seizure. He was rushed to the emergency room. Come to find out, he has a golf ball-sized tumor in the front, uh, the right frontal lobe of his brain. Neurosurgeon consult. He has to have surgery immediately. 
it's a malignant tumor. It doesn't look good. And at this point, he's a young 30-something-year-old with an 11,000-member megachurch. I mean, what do you do? He has emergency surgery. They remove the tumor. And the doctors tell him it's 50-50 at this point. You may live, you may not. He starts feeling all the signs of, of cancer, goes through chemo, hair loss, you know, all the things that your body does when you're in chemo and cancer's kind of invading you. Fast forward a year, Matt Chandler is free of cancer. The skeptic would say, well, medical science, he, he availed himself to medical science, and medical science does what it's supposed to do. It, it removed the cancer, it got it all out, and whatever medicine he took, the chemo, healed him. A year later, 2010, Matt Chandler, before God in the world, said, God has healed me. Um, several years ago, uh, I was a, a pastor at Manor Church. I was a campus pastor, and uh, every, every, you know, every service, we'd offer prayer down front at the end of service, and uh, a lady and her young, probably uh, lower teen son comes up and they need prayer because something's going on with his ears. It's called, there's pain, there's uh, fluid happening, and the doctor, uh, you know, he's basically going to lose his hearing if something doesn't happen. And so they asked for prayer. And, you know, it was just one of those things. They asked for prayer, I prayed. I don't know what I prayed. This lady came back. I, she didn't come back to me. She came back to the elders of the church, uh, of which I was one. She came back to the elders of the church two weeks later and said, a miracle's happened. We went to the doctor expecting the worst that my son was going to lose his hearing and that even surgery wasn't going to be able to help it. And Jeff prayed this prayer and my son, his hearing is restored. It's a miracle that he can hear. I almost fell on the floor. I mean, that had never happened before. No one had ever told me that I prayed for them and that like they got better, that they got healed. Um, and, and here's the issue with this. That's a little skeptic in all of us, right? And I'm like, mm. it's like, ain't, I ain't got no power. And there's no power in Jeff to do that. And, and, and I was a pastor at the time. I knew about the power of God and, and, and the scripture's exhortation to pray for the sick and, and they can get better. Not in our own, not in my strength, but in the strength that God, the Holy Spirit provides. But even with that, I was like, oh, my gosh, could it have, had, could have really happened? And that really is the issue with all of us that are skeptics. And if, if, you're, if you're here and you're a skeptic today, it's okay that you're a skeptic. But let me give you some principles that, that might help you. Now, I'm going to get to the text in a minute. Um, one of the principles that, that the skeptic has to get around with is the, the, the idea of the familiar. And we actually see this in this text. I'm going to back up two verses, verse 43. In chapter 4, it says, after two days, he departed for Galilee. And so Jesus started in uh, Jerusalem. He was there for the Passover. He's making his way back up. Last week, we looked at Samaria. He stopped at Samaria. He had a divine appointment with the, the woman at the well. And then he's going back to Galilee. He's going home. Verse 44, for Jesus himself had, uh, had testified that a prophet has no honor in his own hometown. Verse 45. So when he came to Galilee, the Galileans welcomed him, having seen all that he had done in Jerusalem at the feast, for they too had gone to the feast. And so this, this first principle that skeptics have to, have to deal with is the, is, uh, is the prejudices that you naturally have. Uh, this, is what, this is the principle. There are invisible prejudices that influence your ability to believe. In other words, there's things that you're presupposing um, that get in your way, that don't even allow you to believe what's right there in, in front of you. And so in this text, Jesus is making his way back home to Galilee, and he realizes as he goes to Galilee that he's going home. But the problem is, it's a problem of the familiar. Those that were in Galilee where he grew up and lived, uh, they knew it was just Jesus. This is Mary and Joseph's son. I mean, he's, he's a, uh, a carpenter. I mean, we know his brothers and his sisters. And so you want us to believe that there's something special about him, that he can do miracles and that he can heal. And so if you're a skeptic, there is this, this idea of you can't even get over, the, get over the obstacle of those things that are right there in front of you because they're, they're too familiar. Another principle is, that the skeptic has to get over is this idea of 
guilty unless proven innocent. And this means if you show me, I'll believe. If you show me what you want me to believe and I see it, I touch it, I feel it, then I'll believe. And a lot of us are, are like this with miracles and definitely with healing. See, I'm, I'm not trying to give you an apologetic here to, to, uh, up front, but I'm trying to give you some background into the things that we have, the humps that we have to get over to receive the miraculous so that this passage makes sense. So that we, re, we really receive what God is, is saying here in regards to what he does in, in healing. C.S. Lewis is helpful. C.S. Lewis wrote a book in 1947 called Miracles. It was rewritten, updated in 1960. And in this book, C.S. Lewis says this. He says, you can always explain something away if you're philosophically committed to doing so. There's always an alternative explanation. And so if I'm a skeptic and I see somebody get healed, then I'm likely to make an excuse a predisposition and say, you know what, if you go to the doctor and the doctor cuts it out, then the doctor, the doctors healed you. God hadn't healed you. Or you may, uh, in the case of uh, uh, me praying for a boy who needed healing in his ears, they may say, well, maybe it was just a simple old earache and he needed a little bit of uh, penicillin or, or whatever, an antibiotic to make it go away. That's what a, a, a skeptic would say. And C.S. Lewis encourages us, if you're a skeptic and you're, and you're fighting just the, the doubts in your heart and your mind over whether things can really exist, he says, go outside and look up. He says, just look up and ask yourself, how in the world did all this stuff get here? Not the, not the school building, guys, outside. <laughs> go outside and look up, look around you. How in the world did this stuff get here in the first place? You know, science tells us that it was a big bang that caused the, the universe and definitely the, the world to happen. Here's my contention. If there was a big bang, then there has to be a big banger, right? That there has to be somebody, someone, something that's, that's bringing the things together for the big bang to happen. Again, I'm not trying to give you an apologetic, but I guess I, I sort of am at the same time. You can also ask yourself, how, uh, how is morality even possible? How is it that you and I, even if we don't want to admit it, kind of sort of know that what right is and what wrong is and what good and, and what bad is? Somebody put that in us, even if you don't abide by it all the time. What about DNA? What about the signature and design of DNA in the human cell? I was reading on the Internet yesterday, and of course, everything you read on the Internet is absolutely true. At least for this example, it is. In each cell that you have in your body, I don't know how many you got, but you got a lot of them. There are, there's, a, there's a code that's three million letters long that defines each cell. 99% of those make us human beings. And there's 1% that makes you uniquely you. There's no natural process that can create these DNA so that you are human, that you are you. Something outside of us, something outside of this world did that. And so in the big picture, if, there, if there's a God, if you can even fathom that, if he created us all, then it's not impossible for him to intervene in his world, in the laws of nature, even in healing. Then there's a question of, did these stories really happen? Did they really happen? There's a lot of ancient texts. There's Greek mythology that gives us miracles just like this. And, and so scholars say, what's the difference between what we read in Christianity, in the Bible, and an ancient text that said so-and-so and such-and-such and such happened, that, a, a huge healing? And scholars would tell us it's one word. It's timing. In all the ancient texts, Greek mythologies that you read, you read of someone that, that's writing a story about a miracle that happened, but there's no eyewitness. In Christianity... God gives us eyewitnesses of people who were there, who wrote about it, and who circulated documents detailing what they, what they witnessed. One example of that is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. 1 Corinthians 15. It's not going to be on your screen. Paul is writing, I mean, he's writing to the Corinthian church, and he's exhorting them a whole, about a whole bunch of things, and he gets on this topic of the resurrection. And before he gets there, he starts talking about the gospel. And in the midst of that, he says... For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried, he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, 
and they appeared to Cephas. That's Peter. Then to the twelve. That's all the, the twelve apostles that we see written in Scripture here. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom were still alive, though some had fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James. James, not the apostle. James, his brother. Then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared to me also. Why did he include all those names? Because he wanted the people who were still alive, if they, if they had doubt about Jesus and his death on the cross and his resulting resurrection, he go check it out. Go ask Jimmy Bob. Jimmy Bob will tell you Jesus was alive, he died, and then he rose again from the dead. 1 Corinthians 12, I'm, I'm going to keep going in this, in, this, in this vein. Paul says more. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as, as raised from the dead, how can some of you say there's no resurrection of the dead? But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. Of course, the theme here is, is resurrection. And so what Paul is saying is it all hinges on a miracle. What you believe as a Christian hinges on a miracle. Did you know that? You've put all of your faith, all of your belief on the resurrection, and the resurrection is a miracle. Christianity isn't a moral code or a philosophy of life with miracles sprinkled in. Christianity is a miracle with morality springing from it. That's a huge difference. And the office of the New Testament attests this. The office of the New Testament attests this. Two more verses, and then we'll get to our text. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain, and your faith is in vain. We are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom we did not raise, if it's true that the dead are not raised. It's a circular argument. Paul is saying Christianity is a miracle. Resurrection is a miracle. That's how you came to faith. And if the people that are testifying that this is true are lying, then it, you're pitiful. You've believed a lie and your faith is, is nothing. That's a huge thing. And so miracles challenge the skeptic. But what our text tells us is miracles challenge the crowd. And that's what we see, at least in the first, this first healing with the official and, and his son. So verse 46. Chapter 4, John chapter 4, verse 46. So he came again to Canaan in Galilee, where he had made the water wine. And at Capernaum, there was an official whose son was ill. Verse 47. When this man heard that Jesus had come from Judea to Galilee, he went to him and asked him to come down and heal his son, for he was at the point of death. What I want you to, we're going we're gonna to go quickly through these, these two signs, these two healings. And, and let me preface it by saying what I want you to pay attention to is the, the pictures of healing. Both of them surface questions that we might have in regard to the miraculous. We're going to see God operating differently in two different scenarios in regard to the miraculous. And I'm going to bring out how we're challenged by, by what the scriptures present to us in terms of healing and, and how that challenges our faith. And so a little background to what's, what's going on here. This, this first character is a royal official. This person would have been in Herod's court. And all that means is... He would have had influence. He would have had land. He would have had money. If he could have bought healing for his son, he would have done it. But the sign of his desperation is he came all the way from Capernaum to find Jesus at Cana of Galilee. And if you remember, Jesus started at Cana back in John chapter 2. Cana was 21 miles away from Capernaum, and this man would not have had a horse. He would have walked 21 miles to be in the presence of Jesus so that Jesus could heal his son. Verse 48. So Jesus said to him, unless you see signs and wonders, you will not believe. I don't know what your impression of Jesus is. Most of the time we think he has long, blonde, fair faucet hair. He's like tossing it back left and right. We think Jesus, Jesus walks up to everybody. and He just wants to give you a nice little hug like a pillow. This is a rebuke. And so Jesus doesn't notice. Of course, Jesus is divine. He knows him because he's divine. But Jesus has never met this man. And his first words to the man that come from Jesus' mouth is an outright rebuke. He's like, why are you coming up to me asking me to heal your son? You don't know me. In fact, 
I, I, I question why you're even asking me to heal your son. Really what was going on is Jesus is prophetically not just talking to this man. He's actually, by this point, crowds are following Jesus. They're just following him around, trying to see what he's going to do next. And there, there would have been a crowd here, even at this setting, as Jesus is going from wherever he is back up to Galilee. And so Jesus is prophetically speaking to this crowd of people, and, and he's saying, you don't worship me as Savior and Lord. You're just trying to see me do, you're just trying to wait and see what my next miracle is. And that really is what's going on here. This crowd that, that Jesus is speaking to, this man, this crowd, they're no different than the, the crowd that we saw at the end of John chapter 2. If you remember Jesus, uh, he was going south at that point. He comes to Jerusalem. They go through the, the Passover. And at the end of John chapter 2, we get this idea that Jesus is doing miracles and performing signs that the Bible doesn't elaborate on. And Jesus makes this one statement. He says, Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people. And, and so it, the same thing is going on. Jesus knew the people that were following him. He knew the heart of the man that was coming and asking him to heal his son. And, and here's the thought. John is letting us into what Jesus is thinking. And this is what Jesus is thinking. I don't trust you. I, I don't trust you because I know your heart. And so the, que the main question that Jesus is, is posing right here is, it's not, do you have faith? But what kind of faith do you have? And here's what I'm suggesting. Uh, this, this, this first healing, healing story, there's, there's two kinds of faith that, that you can have. The first is crowd-like faith, and the other is, is um, disciple-like faith. Now, this is a, a military crowd, at least some, several of you. And so... Crowd-like faith is like foxhole-like faith. Y'all know what foxhole-like faith is? It's like you're, you're at a Ford operating base and you're receiving incoming. Or you're, in, you're driving down a road and you're Humvee in a convoy and there's an IED, uh, there's, there's like small arms fire coming at you and it's like, it's like you, send what, you send up a flare. Help me, Jesus. It's like, Lord, if you just get me through this attack, if you just make this stop, if you... Help me to get through this deployment and help me get home. Then I'll serve you all the days of my life. I'll right all the wrongs that I've done to people. I'll be a good boy. I'll be a good girl. That's, 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 that's crowd-like faith. And Jesus is espousing not crowd-like faith. He's trying to get people to, to have disciple-like faith. Crowd-like faith says, show me a sign. If you show me a sign, I'll believe you. Crowd-like faith says, if I'm really supposed to be consistent in going to church every week and giving money to the church and, and serving in the church, then God's going to bless me for giving. Something is going to happen that let, let, lets me know God has blessed me and I'll keep doing it. Crowd-like faith says, I'm having difficulty with, in my relationship with my spouse. And if, if God can make it better somehow, it, if I'm going to even stay in this relationship God's got to do something, and if he doesn't do it, that's my sign that I'm supposed to get out of the relationship. That's crowd-like faith. It's like you're waiting for a sign to happen, and if the sign, if the sign happens, then you'll be faithful to God. That's not the faith that Jesus is asking us to have here. What, I mean, how do you follow Jesus when times get tough? That's the question crowd-like faith asks. This is where crowd-like faith leads us. In two weeks, three weeks, we're going to get to John chapter 6. And Jesus starts saying some hard things. Specifically, he says, if you want to be my disciple, you got to eat my flesh because I'm the bread of life. And you got to drink my blood. And of course, he's speaking metaphorically. But guess what his disciples do? They leave him. Not all of them, but half of them leave him. It's like, that's a hard saying, Jesus. How can we, how can we do that? How can we eat your flesh and drink your blood? That's like cannibalism. Here's the question. Where are you? Are you into crowd-like faith or disciple-like faith? Do you only express faith when you feel like it? You know, sometimes we mistake faith for feeling. I, I want to feel it, and then I'll believe. Secondly, sometimes we just want a sign. We don't want the relationship. We just want a sign. And it seems like that's what this man is doing. But let's see what happens. Verse 49. The official said to him, sir, come down before my child dies. 
I'm a parent. Several of you are parents. You can't help but see some desperation in this man's voice and in his actions. Think about it. You got a child that's sick, a child's in trouble. If you are a parent, you will do anything to help, protect, cover, get your child well. Even if, even if it costs you all that you have. As a parent, God has put, you in, put that in you to do all that. And that really is what's behind this man's persistence. Interestingly, all this man knew is that he had heard about a Jesus who was in Cana and he believed somehow that he could heal. And so he, he really here is not saying, Jesus, I'll follow you. I'll give my life over to you. All he's saying is, I believe that somehow you are able to heal my son. And so he says, could you please come down to Capernaum and help me? Because I don't have anywhere else to go. We'll finish this out right here. So Jesus said to him, verse 50, go, go, your son will live. So Jesus heals his son without even being there. The man believed the word that Jesus spoke to him and went on his way. As he was going down, his servants met him and told him that his son was recovering. So he asked them the hour when he began to get better. And they said to him, yesterday at the seventh hour, the fever left him. The father knew that that was the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live. And he himself believed and all his household. This was now the second sign that Jesus did when he had come from Judea to Cana. A couple of observations. Firstly, we notice here that, that faith is a process. I mean, when does this man actually believe? Verse 50 says he believed. Him and his household. Something's going on. Something neat is going on in this passage of a progression of faith. Does he, does he believe as he's walking those 21 hard miles from Capernaum to, 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 to Cana? Does he believe when Jesus rebukes him and says, you just want a sign. You're not here to follow me. Does he believe when Jesus speaks the word and his son is healed? His son's way over there in Capernaum and Jesus is right here in, Cap in, in Cana. Does he believe right there? Or does he believe perhaps when his disciples meet him on the road and say, hey, your son is, your, your son is healed. I, I, mean, I actually think faith is happening all, I mean, at every step of the way, which says to us, faith, belief in the miraculous, belief in healing, it can be progressive. Though you might not believe fully right here, if, you, if you're persistent, maybe you'll believe as you, as you press on. Here's a saying right here. We live steps of faith. Our steps of faith foster faith. Faith strengthens our faith. And that may, that may sound redundant, but what it's expressing is if, if you just take like half a step, half a baby step, God meets you where you are and allows you to take a full step, to, like, to take another full step. I think the, the, the text here is, is encouraging us. Don't agonize thinking about you don't have enough faith to believe that God can do something in your life. Take a step, take an action that's right in front of you. Think of all those Indiana Jones movies where they're in some deep, dark dungeon. There's like, like mad men coming behind them and there's all kind of weird looking animals out front. And the only way they can go is to take a step. And he closes his eyes, which is like the Temple of Doom or something like that. He closes his eyes and all of a sudden, this pathway appears that he didn't know was there, and he's able to get across into safety. I'm not saying that's what happens when you, when you take a step and believe God. But what I am saying is God gives us feelings of confidence and assurance when we take a step. I think the point here is seeing is, is not believing. Believing is seeing. God, God wants us to get to the point where we're like this, this guy, from this official from Capernaum. We're believing even though we don't see. We're believing his word. All right, the second parable, the second um, narrative, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go a little bit faster for the sake of time. I'm actually going to paraphrase part of it. We're going to read verse 2 through 9, and then I'm going to give some observations and then paraphrase it, and then it will uh, almost be done. So verse 2, actually start verse 1. After this, there was there were a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Stop there. There's a there's a, uh, an interesting happening as we cross from ver from chapter four to chapter five. In chapter uh, from chapter one through four, 
John, the, the evangelist, has been giving us a chronology of Jesus' life. He did this, and then he did this, and then he did this, and then he did this. In chapter 5, we're somewhere in the future. We don't know exactly how long has transpired before this next third sign happens, but we know some kind of feast is happening. We don't know what that feast is. And all of a sudden, Jesus is back in Jerusalem again. So some time has elapsed. Verse 2. Now, there is in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool in Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, Do you want to be healed? The sick man answered him, Sir, I have no one to put me into the water when the, in the pool when the water is stirred. And while I'm going, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, take up your bed and walk. At that, the man was healed, and he took up his bed and walked. A couple observations. And so there, this might have been a spring, a hot spring, or some kind of a place that, that had... Uh, you know, just columns, rock columns, and, and pools of water, such that uh, a sea of people who couldn't do for themselves hung out there. We see a little bit of superstition. Verse 7 says um, that the man was, the invalid was waiting for the, uh, an angel to come and, and stir the water. That, that was superstitious, okay? Was there an angel coming and stirring the water? Had they actually seen someone get healed like that? We don't know. Maybe it was demonic. Maybe something happened that, that, that they, I mean, it, it's one of those miracle things that something happened, but we don't know quite what happened, and we can't make any sense of it. Pretty much so, it was a superstition. Um, what's going on here? First century, there were no wheelchairs. There were no crutches. If you were blind, sick, lame, really, if your family didn't take care of you, you were out there. You, you had to do for yourself. And, and we had this, this sea of people who could not do for themselves, just laying, just laying out in the open, waiting for something to happen to them so that they could get better. And this man is, is one of those, just waiting for life to happen to him so that life for him could, could get better. The interesting thing is Jesus bas- uh, passes by all these people, all these people that probably needed, deserved, wanted healing, and he only heals one. That's a challenge for me. All these people needed healing. Jesus only heals one. The other thing that I would t- tell you, we're not going to read the rest of this because it's sake of time, is if you read verse 7 through 18, the, the religious folk make an issue of this about the Sabbath. Now, obviously, uh, God created the world in six days. On the seventh day, he rested, and he invites us to live in his rest. Exodus chapter 20 gives us ten commandments, and one of those ten commandments says that we're supposed to uh, observe the Sabbath, which is uh, a day set aside that you don't work, you rest. So uh, the rule that the, the Jewish leaders here we're emphasizing is this man picked up his mat and he walked, which they were classifying as work on a day when they were supposed to rest. And they were livid about that. In fact, one of the things you, you should observe here is that no one, no one shouts, there's no joy, there's no exuberation when this man who was an invalid for 38 years gets up and walks. All that happens is some religious people kind of complain, and it's like, all right, so maybe you didn't get the memo. Um, today's the Sabbath. God started it. We're telling you, we don't do that here. We don't get up, take up our mats, and walk on the Sabbath. So even if you're healed, lay back down, wait the sun down, then you can get up. I mean, that's the, lun- that's the lunacy of what's going on here. Uh, a couple more challenges. First of all, this invalid's faith. He had no idea about who Jesus is. Think about that. This guy had never met Jesus. He probably had never heard a story about Jesus. He just, he just does what Jesus says. Jesus looks at him. You want to be healed? He's like, well, I need an angel to come to stir the water. Jesus said, look, man, get up. Take up your mat and walk. 
What did he do? He got up, took up his mat, and he walked. Um, yeah, that's the only one I got time for. There's a lot I could say here. Let me, uh, let me encourage you. There's a book that I want you to read. I want you to, if, if you ever have, if you're skeptical, if you've got questions about why people don't get healed, then a book that would be helpful for you is a, is a guy by the name of Sam Storms. He's an Acts 29 pastor, theologian. He wrote a book called Tough Topics, Biblical Answers to 25 Challenging Questions. He gives seven reasons why Jesus would, why someone doesn't get healed that might deserve healing. Okay, very good reasons. And those will be applicable um, to, to what we read here. I want to get to my second topic, run through this, and then I've got some, uh, some things about the transit and miraculous. Um, the purpose of miracles. What I find interesting in, in these two signs here is John never uses the word miracle. He, he uses the word sign. And there's a reason for that. And the reason he uses the word sign is because it, it points to not what's happening, but something greater. John was pointing to something greater in every miracle that we see uh, throughout his gospel. Think about this. Jesus could have just showed up because he's, he's divine, right? He's God. He could have showed up. He could have levitated. People could have, I mean, people would have been mesmerized by this, but he doesn't do any of that. He lives life. He goes through and by the power of the Spirit. He, he chooses people to heal, and some didn't get healed. Um, one scholar says this about signs. This is D.A. Carson. He says, Jesus' miracles are never simple naked displays of power, still less neat conjuring tricks to impress the masses, but they are signs, significant displays of power that point beyond themselves the deep realities that could be perceived with the eyes of faith. He's pointing to something beyond what we can see. We've quoted a verse every day of this series that's at the end of John. John chapter 20, verse 31. John tells us the purpose of signs in this verse. He says, But these things are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. On our website is the very first message I preached. It's called Intro to John. And then I sort of break this down. There's three things here that John wants to convey to us that will happen if we, you know, that point to why he gives us all these signs. The first is that we might believe so that you might. He's written all this stuff so that we might believe in, in John chapter four, verse 53. The unique thing that happens in the case of the official and his son is, is that he believed. The, the, the man says the, the, the scripture says that if I can find it. The father knew that the hour when Jesus had said to him, your son will live, and he himself believed in all of his household. So I think in a sense, what John wants us to do is be reading scripture and to be mesmerized by what we see about Jesus. But more importantly, uh, to be amazed at the miracle, but know that the miracle is pointing us to something greater. It's pointing to the fact that Jesus is is God. He's sent from heaven to earth to invade our space, to, to, to bring us to himself. And that really is the second thing that we see here in this passage. He says to believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. And all the prophets uh, prophesied that, that one would come that would uh, be the Messiah, the anointed one that would save us from our sins. And so John, John says, Jesus shows up and he says, hey, I'm here I'm the one, believe in me for the forgiveness of your sins, and you'll be saved. And lastly, he says that the signs are given so that we may have life in his name. That really is what's happened. I mean, you can see that vividly in the, the invalid that, that, that comes to life. And, and this is the deal about how salvation gives us life. Christianity says that everything in our lives is affected by sin. Your, your personal life, your emotional life, your relational life. And Jesus comes to give us life, to resurrect us from all those things that, that hold us down. He offers us the fruit of healing in physical, relational, and emotional parts of our life. Th this life is just the first fruits. We won't gain full healing in any area of our life here, but there, th there's life coming. And in that life, there'll be a complete healing of all that we know. 
Last thing, last point, and I'll be quick on this. Transit church and the miraculous. And here I'm just laying down a couple of things that we believe in regards to miraculous things and, and healing. We want to stay away from two errors. The first error is the error of the cessationist. The cessationist says that miracles don't happen today. And I could give you a, I got a long argument written down, but I'm going to tell you that what I would espouse that we do is we just believe scripture. And here's what scripture says. Scripture says in, in 2 Corinthians that today is the day of salvation. And what Jesus means by that is salvation is a season. And it was inaugurated when Jesus came to the earth. He lived the perfect life, died on the cross for our sins, and resurrected. And the day of salvation will go until Jesus comes back again. It's a season of salvation that he's inviting us to come and experience the life that only he can give. And oh, by the way, he gives us the Holy Spirit that we might do greater works, the Bible says, than he did. Are we going to do like all these miracles like that Jesus did? Probably not. But he's saying by the power of the Holy Spirit, we will do greater works than what, we can, what, what we've seen here in the pages of Scripture. The other error that we want to stay away from is to, is to get so crazy about healing that we say sickness shows a lack of personal faith. You ever had some preacher or someone that just told you, hey, if you don't get healed, if you're sick and you can't get well, if you don't have perfect health, then you just don't believe enough. In fact, your sign of sickness is, is, uh, is commensurate to your relationship with God. I can give you at least six scripture verses off the top of my head that conveys sickness is in our world and it happens to all of us because of the sin that's in our world. All of us will get sick. Sickness, poor health, is not a sign of sin. Can it be a sign of sin? Yes. In the case of the invalid, uh, there's, there's, there's words here that Jesus says in verse 14, chapter 5, verse 14. He says, see your well, sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. This is telling us this man's sin was, was an obstacle to his healing. But is it, does it mean that every time we sin, we're bringing on um, uh, abnormalities and maladies to our life? Absolutely not. So we want to stay away from those. When it comes to healing in our church, we don't believe that everybody can get healed. And I know this is a sensitive topic. Perhaps some of you have some kind of illness that you haven't been able to get over. Uh, I know there's a few of you that, that want to get pregnant and have not gotten pregnant. And you're praying through, pressing through that, trying not to lose hope. And, and we remain prayerful with you that you would not lose hope and God would, God would do those things which seem impossible in your life. You know, probably the best example in the Bible of someone who was sick, who had a chronic illness and they didn't get well, was the Apostle Paul. This is what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 12, verse 8 through 12. He says, three times I pleaded with God that he would take uh, an informality away from me. But, but God basically said, no. He said, my grace is sufficient for you. And that tells us everybody's not going, not going to get healed. You know, some of, the, some of the people I've respected most in life have been those that suffered the most. And that's a hard saying. To have to know that God has purposed suffering in your life to bring out something that you're not really, not really even asking for. But oftentimes, this is God's plan for us. James said, the book of James says, character is produced in the cauldron of suffering. That's what we get out of James chapter 1, verse 2 and 4. This is God's gift to us. Suffering, having something that you want God to heal you from, and that healing not coming. And that really is what Paul is suggesting here in 2 Corinthians. It's not that God ignored Paul's prayer. God is basically saying, Paul, I have something better for you. I want you to suffer to make you strong. And so if you're suffering here, if you've been praying for healing, physical, emotional, psychological, and God has not God has not worked in your life yet. Don't stop praying, but make room that God is causing you to suffer to produce something better. What is that better? I can't define it for you, but it's better. 
if we believe James 1, that God brings suffering to, to give us better, then we also have to believe James 5. This is what James chapter 5 says, verse 13 through 16. Come on, gentry. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing praise. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. Next slide. And the prayer of faith will save the one who's sick, and the Lord will raise him up. And if he commits sins, he'll be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man has great power as it's working. We could read these words and think that it's charismatic chaos. Charismatic chaos. For those of you that have been in the charismatic church, Pentecostal setting, and, and sometimes it can be. But this is scripture. And what it's encouraging us to do is if you have a headache, if you have a pain in your body, if something's going on for which you even think about prayer, then you should bring it to the elders of the church. Right now, we only got one elder. That's me. But I have community group leaders and a bunch of leaders that know how to pray. And this is something that we can do, that we should do, and that we do do. That didn't sound right. All right? That we, that we anoint people with oil, that we lay our hands on them, and that we offer the prayer of faith that God would heal those who are sick. We believe what Scripture says. And so, let's be encouraged. Let's lean in in faith, trusting that God the Father can make judgment calls when we ask him for prayer. And, you know, like the official who, who trusted that even 21 miles away, Jesus could heal his, his son. Let's believe the word. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that it does not return void. We thank you for this picture of of the miraculous, and though that scares some of us, I pray, God, that, um, that we would be like uh, the, the invalid, not invalid in our, body, in our physical body, but invalid in, in, our, in our ability to trust Jesus and our willingness to obey him without even knowing him. And that's the, that's the, the miracle of what happened right there, that he didn't even know Jesus. He just believed upon his encounter with him. Make us like the, the man who would travel 21 miles on the, the faint chance that Jesus would be there and that he could offer a word to heal something going on in our lives. God, more importantly, I, I pray that you would deliver us from any skepticism that we have. Deliver us by your truth. Your word is truth and help us to, to know and receive and believe who Jesus is, that he gives us these signs that we might believe that he is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing we might have life. Give us life in his name. And that we pray. Amen.